and welcome back to the latest episode of the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast. I'm Sheila from BMR Health and Wellbeing, and I'm here with my brand new co-host, Dr. Jackie Wilmshurst. So Jackie is a chartered psychologist. She specializes in psychological health, safety and well-being, and also the newly emerging field of neurodiversity. So really, really excited to have Jackie on the podcast. Uh, throughout our podcast, we're going to be talking to you about psychological health and safety, about what it is, why it's important, and what practical steps you can take um, as a business to elevate your well-being support and strategy and resources to that next level using really simple, practical uh, and proactive approaches. Um, today, you've just got me and Jackie chatting um, away. Uh, hopefully, we won't bore you to death too much, but we could talk the hind legs off a donkey. Uh, every week, we're going to be joined by uh, some really incredible guests. We have got some great guests coming up from the field of HR, academia, um, health and safety. And again, some business leaders, those that get it really right, those that got it very wrong and then got it right. Um, it's just going to be an interesting pot of people uh, that are going to be here to share their experiences, their practical insights, what did work and what didn't work. So whether you're a HR pro, whether you're a business leader, or you're simply just somebody who cares about creating healthy, inclusive, pleasant work environments, then this podcast is for you. Um, so as you know, I do... Waffle. I can talk a lot, um, but I want Jackie to get a word in Edgeworth, uh, who could also talk, um, and basically introduce herself and background a bit about how we met. Over to you, Jackie. Thanks, Sheila. Yes, met my match there, haven't I? Because once I start talking, it's sometimes quite hard for anyone else to get in. Um, we shall do our best to take turns, won't we? Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, I have... Um, in my potted career so far, being um, an officer in the British Army, flown helicopters briefly, worked in learning and development, um, did a PhD in psychology relating to essentially risk and resilience in a range of different contexts, which I then brought back into workplace and um, merged that with my learning and development background. And I've spent the last over 10 years helping businesses uh, and as part of that also employees to really work out how to take best care of psychological well-being at work, particularly with a focus on the actual workplace and the work factors. Um, I do work more broadly in mental health at work as well, supporting everybody with the things that just happened to us in life or have happened to us in the past or, you know, all, all the different things that make up our health overall. Um, but I do have an interest now. Um, I've actually been working in what what's known as psychological health and safety for over a decade, and I'm delighted by the fact that global um, standards are, are there now and and people are really starting to take pay more attention to it so it's a fantastic time to be having these conversations now so jackie we hear a lot of buzzwords a lot of new terminology that's thrown around so we've got psychological health and safety psychosocial hazards psychological risk assessment psychosocial risk assessment. you know it can be really rather quite quite overwhelming and i think as we kind of move into um further into the podcast that's what we're kind of really hoping to delve into isn't it and to really explain this back beyond not the mumbo jumbo but beyond the buzzwords or you know the the kind of scary words that we sometimes hear and just really get to the meat and bones 
um, yes. of, of what psychological health and safety is. So I just want to kind of let the listeners know as well how we kind of came to to be um, yes. as as uh, friends and podcast hosts. <laughs> um, and the, some of the other things you'll find about uh, out about me and Jackie as you go along, or certainly about Jackie, and it's probably a time for a story for another time, is that she also has the moniker of the crazy squirrel lady. <laughs> well earned, I may add. <laughs> but in terms of how we met Jackie, that was a conversation post or during the pandemic, I believe. I think it was, though, if my memory serves me right. It was via LinkedIn it for may sure. Have been, it may have even been a little bit before, but I know that I'm pretty sure I looked you up having seen either a podcast or I saw something about you somewhere and thought, aha, here is someone else in the United Kingdom who does psychological health and safety. And by the way, we do need a shorthand for that because it's nine syllables every time we say it. And this may be one of the reasons it's not catching on quite as well as it could. <laughs> psychological health and safety. Um, but I remember reaching out and just saying, look, hey, I, I think I was relatively uh, lighthearted then about saying we could we could be competitors and rivals here. Yeah, let's have a virtual coffee and and a chat. And it could have gone could have gone any any kind of different way. But I think pretty quickly we recognised that working together was going to be a a lot more fruitful, but frankly a lot more fun and enjoyable. And I, I think it's working out that way so far. Yeah, it's it's doing good. I've met a squirrel. She's called Bella. I've given my first squirrel toothbrush massage. Um, so it's been very, very, very interesting so far. But again, more of that later and maybe even the odd video of Bella getting her little massage. Um, Bella did actually try to take the end of my finger off uh, two nights ago, I just have to say, presumably because yeah. she had the wrong toothbrush ma toothbrush masseurs at, at play. <laughs> I think but just to put it, <laughs> I think maybe we just to put it into context, maybe we do give a little bit of background as to what the squirrel story and the squirrel conversation is about. Just before people decide never to tune in again to these completely crazy, <laughs> crazy women, um, I'm a, I'm a licensed uh, squirrel rescue or sanctuary actually sanctuary in that I give sanctuary to squirrels that can't be anywhere else and therefore a number of them are disabled, healthy in their own right, but disabled. And Bella, that I don't, I've, I've got eight actually, so I won't give you a breakdown of every single last one of them, but they're all fabulous. But um, Bella's actually paraplegic and a complete force of nature. And because her back legs don't work, she can't scratch herself, which she continually clearly wants to do. And therefore, she gets very regular ear scratches from a toothbrush. The reason it's a toothbrush is because any finger that goes through the bars is in great peril. Because whilst she's friendly enough from a distance, uh, her, her, her front end isn't to be messed with. So the uh, the toothbrush massages is something I introduced you to when she visited recently. And um, Bella only went and liked her more than me. So I, I think that's possibly where the biting's come from. Because you just not me. <laughs> Brilliant. <You're ruined> <laughs> so let's go back to some of the um, kind of bit of the introduction bit at the beginning of the, of the podcast. And, you know, let's just talk in simple terms, Jackie. What is psychological health and safety is the first question it's a good one because as you've said it's a very jargon heavy area if we're not careful and I can be guilty of that I like my academic background I like my words um but in a nutshell we if we trace back a little bit there was a time not so long ago that our mental health 
psychological well-being they're not different things um wasn't really paid a great deal of attention to at work uh things like employee assistance programs have been around a, a good number of decades now i think since the 1930s and the history there was actually in the states that um workplaces recognized that supporting employees with their mental health kept them at work kept them productive that it was a good idea business-wise as well as being a kind of morally good thing to do to provide that support but that was very much an employee benefit that was thinking more around people have stuff going on outside of work times can be hard we know we know that more than ever now but this was back at, at really difficult times um the 30s very difficult decade um so offering that support helps employees um navigate some of the challenges and we've, we've got that legacy now and that's great but i think what's then happened is there has been a bit of a tendency just for workplaces to look and say mental health is to do with what happens to people outside of work. They may have diagnoses, they may have all sorts of things impacting negatively on their mental health. But it seems still as a little bit of a benevolent sort of benign parental thing, like we'll look after our employees because it's the right thing to do. And I mean, there's a place for that. That's part of things because it is a good thing to do and it does help us all feel supported in our worlds. But actually, that the mental health field, even when it's really kind of exploded, I have noticed that it's stayed, it's kind of stayed there around. Um, we we support people with their problems, but their problems are not generated at work or by the workplace or by things that happen at work. So it's still stuck a little bit over there. And when I have done quite a lot of work, I've been head of mental health at the BBC. I've been um, a consultant in mental health a long time. Is that so, so, so much positive stuff has been done but we're still up until now, really, looking at the only bit that really properly looks at workplaces is where we look at sort of stress management and then the new buzzword of resilience. But the emphasis there is still around individual employees becoming better at managing stress, becoming more resilient as individuals. It's quite general about how we manage stress in life or how we become more resilient as people. It's really, really beneficial to, to be offered that kind of development in our lives. But what it shouldn't be replacing is actually understanding how our work and the workplaces, whether we physically go to them or we don't, how is it that our working life can impact on our mental health positively when it's going well, which also gets forgotten about and neglected, I have to say. Um, but also negatively. And it's a lot, lot, lot more than resilience training, EAPs and stress management. I won't yet ramble on for endlessly longer about what it is, but suffice to say that it's it's about understanding what impacts on our, our mental health at work and how when it's foreseeable together, not it's, it's neither just employees um, duty of care or obligation, neither is it just workplaces. It's always got to be a partnership. Um, and in that respect, it does mirror physical health and safety in that we can have all the talks on diet and nutrition and sleep and health and robustness and resilience and going to the gym and benefits packages. But when our work itself requires anything from manual handling to working at height, we don't just get told to lean on our benefits packages. Neither are we told to make ourselves more and more and more resilient in case we fall off a third floor piece of scaffolding. So, um, that's a that's a kind of a good analogy into what we're looking at here, which is really proactively protecting workforces for everybody's sake. So, I mean, it's 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 a difficult one to get into with it in our introductory session, if you will, um, on on the podcast. Um, but taking that simple example, you've um, you've developed a model and a framework, haven't you? Um, 
over the last decade that's that's used in some in some very big organizations as a, as the foundation for their approach in this area do you want to talk to us a little bit about that just as a kind of introduction into that framework yeah absolutely and I, and I came up with the four p's not as some kind of an academic framework or model it was actually a very practical way of me having conversations with people and essentially kind of mapping. So I noticed right back. Uh, and in fact, my way into this was quite specific in that because of my military background, when I left um, academic research, because I was far too wanting to, I'm too much of a doer to um, be an academic full time and publish papers. The good thing is I know where to find the evidence out there for what works and what doesn't work. And I like to now bring that into the real world in very practical ways. But one of the first things I found my way back into when I was finding my feet as a self-employed consultant back in 2012, it would have been, I think, was what's called hostile environment training. And it's training courses, well, a whole host of different professions have to go through these. Um, particularly, I was with a company who were delivering training for the BBC at the time. Uh, but I was also working for another company as a freelancer who was working with humanitarian aid workers. But the, in a nutshell, this was for people who are going to physically high-risk environments, whether it be war zones, conflict zones, or just very areas of huge instability. It could be places where the natural disaster, um, but all kinds of things where they need to understand health and safety in a way that isn't looking for loose wires in an office or slippery floors in the toilets. So this hostile environment training is a number of days of very immersive residential training that says, what are all the things that could hurt you where you're going and given that the job that you're doing and how do we help you not get hurt by them? But it's paired with um, some really good first aid around if you don't have a hospital nearby and something big's going on, how do you live live long enough to get to hospital in, in quite blunt terms? So it's this, it's this basically safety training paired with first aid, meaning the acknowledgement is let's try to make sure you don't get hurt. But if you do, we still recognise we'll help you with that. But this was several days long of if you're around weapons being fired, if you're around blasts, if you're around disease if you're around all of these things how do you keep yourself safe and minimize the chance of getting hurt or actually as simple as being in countries where road traffic collisions are very very high and vehicle safety is not well um adhered to really things like that but because of my psychology background, so because of my military background sorry i work in that security field around weapons awareness and physical safety and so on anyway and I really understand the risk-based approach. I My PhD was about risk, psychology of risk and resilience. So I was delivering that, but part of the package was this one hour, um, it was called PTSD awareness, that essentially was saying, look in amongst it all, big things can happen, bad things can happen, and if they do, you could end up with this awful sort of psychological disorder called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Here's how to spot if you've ended up traumatized to that degree, and here's where to get help. And I just found myself scratching my head and saying, that really interests me why there would be several days of trying not to get physically hurt with the acknowledgement that if you do, there is help available. But just one hour saying, you might get you might get psychologically hurt. And if and you it, do, it's how to recover. And in those types of environments, that psychological impact, I would suggest or think, has a much bigger scope for long-term impact. Yes, and actually the big the big scary PTSD label, and I just say that because it's it, you know it's not it's nasty when people. I'm not a clinical psychologist, by the way. I'm a research psychologist, so I, I spend a lot of time working alongside and learning from clinical psychologists. 
So that's not my expertise in terms of, you know, treatment and so on. However, what I do know from being around it and having been in the military and I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD myself and had my own journey. I say that just to let you know that the the learnings in different professional and personal directions at once. But the, the, the label PTSD is quite precise. And actually, the classic PTSD means that there was something called a PTE, a potentially traumatic event, like a single event that has hit you so hard psychologically that all you really can do is seek help for it. So it is your terrorist attacks and your the things you just couldn't have seen coming. Um, but actually to cross that clinical threshold to be given that label or that diagnosis is, is quite high end. What therefore gets missed is if you think about people who are continually going to places away from usual routines, families, comforts, practices, the, the walking, the yoga, the reading, the whatever it is that we normally do that we maybe take for granted to take care of ourselves you can't even choose often what food you eat you're not choosing how often you can get hold of a satellite phone to speak to someone back home so and in those environments you can be spending several weeks or sometimes only a few days but you can be spending time essentially waiting for something terrible to happen so your system's on high alert the whole time and what's happening is with the journalists and the aid workers coming home they're wondering why they were actually coming home and struggling with all kinds of things that could amount to a sort of a trauma response, certainly a, a, a level of burnout, but what we call hypervigilance. So a big topic, but actually because um, what, what the law says, the UK is any risks to our health as employees, the minute we choose to enter into employment, our employer has a legal duty to um, assess any foreseeable risks to our health it doesn't specify physical health it's just that the physical health and safety industry has done a really good job of understanding all the different kinds of physical risks we face and unfortunately the psychological bit's way behind but that's why it's delightful because we're getting there now but it's to say that if your job role requires you to go places that could be psychological harm harmful in a whole load of ways not just you may get the big injury of ptsd but you're going to have all of these things draining you, using up your time, talking to traumatized people, reporting on traumatized stories, aid workers. But actually what I've learned since specializing in those areas that I work with people who are customer care teams who are dealing with distress, you know, in a world that's going to pot sometimes and cost of living that distressed customers who can become either so distressed that, that, that the people on the end of a, a call can be feeling responsible for them or abusive, therefore they're having to deal with it. So. I've worked now in content moderation, you know, keeping the internet free of the horrible things that they don't want us to see on our Facebook feeds. And suddenly all these dark corners come around where there are work, there are work roles, job roles um, that are foreseeably hazardous to our psychological health. And that absolutely should be being assessed systematically. We've also then got all the usual stuff around if we don't have good relationships at work, if we get bullied, if we get discriminated against work in the neurodiversity field. Um, if we have too much work, if we have too much uncertainty, if there's too much change, all of that can impact um, and is part and parcel of workplaces and how they operate. But there are particularly a lot of job roles themselves that we could see um, need to be looked at. And so that that's where I came from initially. That's a very long way. And Sheila will totally feel free with the editing um, function later on. Um, that the four P's was where I was kind of battling somehow to make what to me was so logical and so rational I was battling for it to land I guess because it was sort of little me saying it doesn't make sense to me that we would do all this stuff around physical health and safety and yet we would simply do trauma awareness for after it's happened when it's foreseeable 
there's a place for trauma awareness for when it's not. So why are we not taking a health and safety approach? And it somehow wasn't landing. And what I was getting back from people time and time again was, but we have an EAP. As I was like, aha, that's a benefit. You don't ask employees to use a benefit for a workplace hazard in physical health and safety anyway, you wouldn't. So it's like, yeah, EAPs are great, but not for that. And then it would be, but we provide resilience training. So also fabulous. But when people are working three stories up on a building site, we don't get told that the way that they kept kept safe is to have resilience training and to have talks on good nutrition and, and, and diet and, and sleep, because those things make us stronger. Those things make us likely to bounce back from a fall or a hit quicker. Same with the psychological hit. But those things are not protecting us from being hurt in the first place. So we're at an, a real tipping point now where this huge emphasis on employees having to be more resilient, as if to say, you know, the world's a complicated, messy and fast place. So you're going to just have to get more and more resilient because it's how it is. It isn't going to it's not going to keep going like that. Um, th there's, a, there's a grain of truth in that. We do all have to manage a, a messy world. We know that very much since the pandemic more than ever. But we also can reasonably expect when we go to work that our employers and the right people within our employers in, in the company have actually stopped and taken a really good look at how to protect us. So the four P's was where I was when people were saying to me, but we've got this, but we've got this, but we've got this. I came up with what is ultimately um, a kind of a mapping tool. And the four P's are very simple. It is promote good health and well-being, because why wouldn't we? Prevent things that are foreseeably harmful that don't have to happen, that people don't have to be exposed to. Protect from the things that we maybe choose a job that does put us in front of things that are potentially hazardous. That's what risk is. Um, but we get equipped, we get protected. We have, I was using the term PPE long before the pandemic. So now everyone knows what that means, but what was our psychological PPE? And then the final P is provide support, meaning same as you have first aiders, even when you've done your best not to have wet floors and not to have loose electrical wires is that things happen sometimes and you need to treat people. And what was, when I put these four P's together and I would sort of catch whatever was given to me, I'd put it like that's promotion, that's first P. And what I was finding is I was able to show people a visual. I've done it in some really big global companies and they'd see that almost everything that they got for a mental health strategy was landing in the first P or the last P, the promote good, generally good health, resilience, all of that, and the support people when things are bad. And virtually nothing that could really be in the pre prevent and protect. And actually, I've had the argument just to preempt that of, well, you know, surely there are things like resilience can be protective, preemptive, but in the same way that I've said about other, other aspects of physical health and safety, you can't have anything in the, the prevent and protect boxes if you haven't systematically risk assessed. You have to have identified what the hazards are that are foreseeable. They are the things that impact on us, not the things that we, they're not our reaction. Stress isn't a hazard, trauma isn't a hazard, that's the injury. So the things that impact on us have to be systematically analyzed and understood before you can even begin to say, this is how we prevent the avoidable ones and this is how we find protection for the unavoidable ones. In that respect, it's taking health and safety language that the first P of the promote but is, is the general health promotion. Um, but actually, prevent, protect and provide support, you could argue, are avoid, mitigate, respond, which are the aspects of health and safety. You, when, once you know what the hazards and the risks are, if you can remove them and stop exposure at all, then you would. Um, and then you mitigate, and then you respond. So that's where the four P's came from. Just last year, the World Health Organization has now got three P's and an S. Uh, the S is support rather than provide support. So 
that's interesting. <laughs> but I'm delighted it's getting out there is all I can say to that. Fantastic. Marvellous. And it's important, isn't it, Jackie? I mean, this is brilliant stuff and we will get into the four P's and this this whole mapping um, and the Maps Academy and everything else that we've got got there in the, in the pipeline and, and that's coming through. Um, but I think, you know, going back to some of this, you know, people will go, oh, it doesn't apply to me. We're not fighting fires. We're not first responders. We're not humanitarian aid workers. It's applicable regardless of your workplace, isn't it? It is. And that was a big lesson for me when I began to kind of slightly pick apart the trauma awareness in the first place. Um, I, because I went away, it wasn't just through that work. I kind of went away and got interested in it anyway. Um and started to develop my, what is now the MAPS Academy, but started to develop my approach to saying, okay, the contents of our minds are maybe a little bit or a lot more um, intangible and, you know, unique. So Sheila, if, if you and I both fell up a piece of scaffolding, we're broadly probably going to break in similar ways. I appreciate it depends on existing injuries and how physically strong we are. So that part is true. Uh, or if we dropped acid on our skin, we'll burn. So physical health and safety can do a lot of, um, risk assessing, but also a lot of control measures that the individuals don't have, just have to adhere to them, like just wear the right stuff, do the right stuff, get trained in the right way. One of the things I get is like, oh yeah, surely this is impossible. It's like, no, it's harder. It doesn't make it impossible because um, individuals have to be involved a lot more in understanding the impact of the job they do and how to reduce the risk of it causing a psychological injury. What I found though, by doing that and really starting to directly, again, it wasn't studying, it was actually working with people in these kinds of professions about what is it that actually impacts you in your job it it yes there was a worry about you know I, I worked with plenty of people who'd lost colleagues in blasts I'd, I'd been shot someone lost half of his leg all that stuff was happening once in a while it was like the high impact low probability in health and safety speak it can happen you need to think about it happening but actually what they were finding was for the most part the psychological injuries for want of a better term or the, the the drain on their psychological well-being was actually the exact same stuff all of us deal with it was when they felt that they were not being understood by their manager not being supported when their colleagues they were they were not feeling well resourced when they were feeling that people were misunderstanding what constituted a fair workload when communication was breaking down so it was particularly under a magnifying glass if they're in you know syria um but actually the more we looked at it it was it was the it was a very human things that were causing over time the biggest effect more of a drip feed effect but actually cumulatively probably more harmful than those slightly less likely things that still have to be considered and that made me realize that when I therefore started to do more work with a broader audience that yes people do come to see me around the high-risk professions I work with emergency services and, and more where you would think about the injury type being a bit more trauma. But but actually what people are saying now is why aren't we doing this for any psychological injury? We don't do health and safety, physical health and safety by injury type. Um, we worry about back injury over there and we worry about head injury over there and we worry about ill health. We actually say, what's the hazard type? Is it working from height? Is it handling hazardous substances? It's the thing that's, it's not which which bit of my body and the reason I say that is we've got this huge split now around stress management and stress awareness and the stress management standards, which are supposed to be the slightly boring everyday stuff that we go to an office job and we get stressed out and communications poor and we don't like our manager or whatever. That's all over in the stress related bucket. And we've got an entirely separate thing all around trauma at work. And um, 
therefore trauma is still slightly stuck in the hole we can't really do much about it happening but we'll treat it afterwards and most of the work around psychological trauma at work has been led by people whose job is to treat trauma which is brilliant and I'm very pleased to have their expertise but what those people haven't been used to doing is saying well what if anything can we do to stop it happening in the first place other than actually health psychology which is my background sits right in the middle of there. Mm. It's interesting isn't it and this is where it's really important that businesses take this holistic and this kind of whole organization wide approach because you know with and I've said this for for years now you know we have lots of businesses with lots they've got the skills they've got the resources they've got everything there and it's really about getting the best utilization out of everything that they've got there so it may be that HR are doing a great piece and they're, they're pushing as much as they can but they don't have that health and safety um experience to be able to manage foreseeable risk and that marketing have got um really great comms teams that do a great uh job of of communicating you know we brought out a new product mr um potential customer look at how we show you the ins and outs of all this but internally hr or health and safety have brought out a new product and the comms just falls flat because you've got hr and health and safety trying to do a comms piece yes without and utilizing i've been that yeah, I've been that in-house employed, you know, head of well-being, trying to be good at comms when I'm actually pretty appalling at it. I mean, you get me to talk about stuff, I'll talk the hind legs of a donkey, but I don't have that skill set. And I learned that several years ago to go and find, and sometimes it was a bit of a beg, borrow and steal someone, um, but actually noticing, and exactly to your point, that, that we still have a lot of fragmentation in our particularly large, complex sort of global organisations. There's all this, you know, matrix working, and loads of really, really good efforts to break down some of those very siloed departments. Mm. But I've still noticed that HR, for example, health and safety, we're often, I've worked within HR, I've worked within health and safety, I've worked trying to span them. And to your point, often I find it's the gathering up of a load of stuff first before we start looking at what's missing. Because to, to your point, health and safety know how to do systematic risk assessments and record them accurately and have policies and processes that allow for reporting of incidents, allow for manuals around it. There's so much already in place that you can actually fill, you know, psychological content into. Meanwhile, HR have got often much bigger teams dealing with employees front end, case management support, HR business partners, hearing from managers. They are absolutely, they've got their finger on the pulse, um, but often they are feeling, you know, really stretched and pulled across uh, a lot of different functions. And often they're not, even I've been in meetings, even when they are speaking, is that is that thing where they're not speaking the same language, they're missing each other. And sometimes, um, you know, health and safety will say, well, right, yeah, we are health and safety, but we don't do mental health because of what I said earlier in the podcast about mental health seen as people are ill or they've got diagnoses, it's part of it, but it's not seen as a health and safety. So they think, oh, well, we, we stick a quick paragraph about how we support mental health and it is usually EAP and some L&D stuff. But meanwhile, um, HR similarly are thinking, well, we're here to put out benefits packages, often events, L&D, loads of brilliant functions, but they feel quite rightly like we wouldn't know how to do a comprehensive hazard assessment and then turn it into a risk assessment and then have. So trying to bring all those skill sets together and get the right language is, is the bulk of it rather than that there aren't really good things. But what I always say there is because I notice, you know, pendulums usually swing where if there's been too much emphasis on for example, employees being more resilient and managing stress. Um, it can then feel, I talk to employers 
whether it's senior leaders, whether it's the health and safety teams feeling like we can't second guess all of the things that might happen to employees when they're at work. It's like, well, you're not supposed to in the same way that you don't know that somebody's got a dodgy back if they don't tell you, you know, that, because that's from outside of work. But what you do do is make sure any manual handling or any desk assessments are all done to minimize harm by work. But it's up to them to bring in the fact that they maybe have a, I have a connective tissue disorder. I don't talk about it very often, but it's relevant the fact I have to have a standing desk. So it's actually always what I call a psychological contract that just says, everyone's got something they should be doing employees we do need to be responsible for our own well-being we do need to catch ourselves having that third and fourth glass of wine because we're stressed out and it's a school night and we shouldn't be doing it and remember that we need to wake up and be you know we all we all do things that aren't great whether it's eating drinking falling out with people we love just habits that aren't good habits so we have a duty of care to our employer to stay as healthy as we can for the work we signed a contract that we're taking a salary to do and to flag up problems but employers absolutely need to meet us halfway by saying, not only will we make sure you've got great benefits packages, that's the sort of nice to have, we will actually take it seriously that we've got to ensure that the ways in which coming to work, remotely or otherwise, could possibly do you harm, we will have looked at it. And it has to be one where there's plenty of consultation both sides. And that's what's beginning to happen. And that's what excites me about this. Yeah, and that's what really then that starts to then once we get people to understand that and once we start to get that buy-in and you know we've got the mapping tool, we can do the mapping audits for organization quite simply and quite effectively. Um, it's then moving on, and again, this is around a lot of what the podcast will be talking about, is is then how do we move that on and turn it into something real and something tangible, which is where we've or where you have developed um the MAPS Academy um, and the different steps around that, because this sort of change, this is really, you know, organization wide type of change. This is organization wide types of processes. And anybody in business knows that getting people to talk, getting departments to cooperate, getting real behavior change in organizations, you know, we can broadcast to people, you should do this and you should do that, but that's never going to change the world, you know. So this is, you know, this is a longer term investment. Um, so talk us a little bit, and again, we can save the rest for another time, maybe, but just what some of those steps are through the MAPS Academy and, and the kind of thought process and, you know, behind the structure, behind the way it's structured. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot and I continue to learn a lot and, you know, I've developed things and continue to develop them always in consultation with, or not even in consultation, in collaboration with my clients, that I'm constantly learning new things about what I thought would work well or what I thought was the best approach to something and then I get the feedback so to that end this is still always under development and I actually I work with every single client as a, a unique individual organization so just to say that but what I found is that certain things in common um one thing as, as well is I, I can be I mentioned that I work in neurodiversity and um I'm on I'm, I'm late diagnosed but I'm autistic ADHD and I, I'm, I'm kind of sometimes quite hilariously almost rational logical at the expense of more nuanced thinking and I, I sort of had to smile at myself that when I did look at UK law around health and safety and how it didn't specify that it had only to be physical risks I just thought job done I just have to tell everyone that the law says they have to do it and then they'll go oh yeah you got me <laughs> and off we'd go and uh, wow was I wrong about that so um the fact of the matter is the law does say that 
And it is true. And I've spoken to senior health and safety lawyers who've said you are indeed 100% correct in your interpretation that in the absence of specifying physical risks, it is indeed all health risks, certainly in the UK and most of Europe, and that absolutely employers have a duty of care to do this the same way as physical by properly understanding hazards and so on. Um, but they also just said, you know, kind of good luck, because actually what you'll find is there isn't any there's no um Quite right, the employers would say, sure, great, but when we need to understand um, working from height, working with hazardous materials, like all the different categories of health and safety physical, there is an endless supply of guidance and manuals and training and experts who'll come and say, yep, don't worry, we'll show you how to do that. This is the fully tested PPE you need for that. These are the right gloves. This is the right high-vis vest. This is the right hard hat that's been tested to within the whatever's of its, you know, it's, it's all there. Whereas this is brand new. So understandably, what the law says is both very, very important. And it's not going to be the main reason why necessarily people start to go, oh. So what I've had to realize over time, and this has been years now, is to say there are just actually really, really sound business reasons why you would want to do this anyway. Um, the legal duty of care is what it is, and it always was. Um, guidance and regulation is coming in, um, for sure. So it's good to be ahead of it. The moral bit just says, you know, we're humans, let's look after each other. And, and if you're an employer, look after your workforce. The obvious business case is don't break people, you know, if you if you can foreseeably not break them. So you can't, as you say, you can offer as much support as possible for what happens outside of work to acknowledge people have caring responsibilities, they get ill sometimes, life happens. That's the great sort of slightly benign benefits part. But also just don't break people by the work and hope that more resilience training will fix it. So there's a very sound reason why it's in everyone's interest. So for that reason as well, I have found that, um, I guess one of my slightly ongoing frustrations is finding, I know that the term senior leaders means a lot of different things depending on your company, but those, whether it's C-suite, but those who are, you know, high up decision makers, I have seen around the mental health field, there'd be more um, evidence of senior leaders saying, it's okay not to be okay, here's my story. And that is wonderful. And I'm really pleased that people are willing to show some, you know, vulnerability as appropriate and still holding accountability and so on for their leadership position, but showing that they're humans. That's that's great. That's a good start. But what I'm not seeing enough of yet is senior leaders saying um, that they are fully involved and engaged in supporting, resourcing and understanding how workplaces can sometimes cause harm. Because understandably, there's a reticence for legal reasons, there's a reticence for lots of reasons to go, surely, surely, coming to work here couldn't be hazardous. Um, but actually, we got past that. Well, we got past a lot of that in physical health. Those who work in physical health and safety will tell me plenty that we're not we're not where I might think they are with the physical health and safety either. But there's a lot of work being done that it's pretty widely accepted that you're supposed to identify things that could hurt people and stop them where possible in simple language. So more senior leaders actually saying, good point. We've got to be willing sometimes to look in the dark corners. We've got to be willing to say, is our culture as inclusive and as um, collaborative and as supportive and, and considerate as it could be when we're all busy? People, when we're stressed, are not very nice. None of us are. We're not very nice in different ways, but we're all not very nice when we're really stressed. And so we've got workplaces full of not very nice people, sometimes not being very nice to each other. And um, all the kind of resilience training and time to talks and coffee mornings isn't going to sort that if the work pressures are not easing. So I know it's a competitive world and I understand businesses need to 
they've got a bottom line for the most part, or if not a profit-making company, they've got targets to meet, they've got funders to please. So I get it, I absolutely do, and I've been in those you know situations myself, but I still think there needs to be a bit more acknowledgement that this needs to be done. The MAPS Academy, therefore, which is my brilliantly long-winded way of getting to the point, you'll get used to this, uh, is that I have found, I, I can do consultancy work with people, and I do, sort of desk-based looking at policies and things. I'm not, it, I'm happy to do it. Um, but what brings me alive is working directly with people in a sort of essentially a teaching capacity. And what I've learned is if I can work with stakeholders live, if I can work with employees, if I can work with managers, to some degree, if I can get senior leaders in front of me for however long they have to spare, um, when I can have those conversations, and it is around workshops, so structured, but very um, interactive, that's where the change really starts to happen. I appreciate that once I walk away, businesses have to be able to embed things and it has to be sustainable and organizational change is a huge thing. Um, but the MAPS Academy is basically um, the, the learning that I bring to the different, to use the jargon, stakeholder groups that creates that psychological contract that says employees understand what it is they're supposed to be doing and are equipped and empowered certainly well enough to understand the impact of the job they do, the workplace they're in, to take good care of themselves and each other, to have, you know, to be willing to access resources, hence the comms piece, um, but also to speak up. And what the organisation has to be able to, managers who are right on that interface and often really overloaded, need to understand how to take care of themselves as well as the business upwards and the people that they're looking after the other way, because manager sandwiches are very squished places to be, I know. So working with managers, not just to load managers up with more, but to say, actually, what is it you should be responsible for and what absolutely should you not? And where are your boundaries and how do you take good care? Working with health and safety to say, what's your role that isn't over there in HR or the bits of mental health that you don't feel is your expertise quite rightly and vice versa for HR. So it's bringing all the different people together that's to say, everyone's got their role to play, but if you can be clearer on what they are, and everyone's seeing it, that it is a collaboration, that's when the change really, really happens, rather than any swing too far in either direction. Yeah, and this is more than a 90-minute training here and a, and a one-hour training there. It's got to be a continuous kind of programme of change and evolution, hasn't it? Because it just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, and I've been guilty of trying to... Um, you know, you always want to please the clients, but actually I, ha I have to manage expectations that says, if you want me to parachute in and run in, run, you know, a workshop, it'll achieve so much. I use uh, behavior change metrics rather than just what we call happy sheets, like people enjoyed themselves. I do look at measures that say this is likely to have, it, it's, it's moved the predictors of behavior change, therefore behavior is likely to change. So I hold myself to account in these ways. However, I would be setting myself up to fail if I tell people that we can do this stuff with with quick quick fixes. Um, you can achieve awareness and aspects of education and understand. So we talk about the why, the what, and the how. We can sort of get as far as the what's really like. These are the things you should be doing, and now you know what they are. But the whole how, like how you implement it over time and get everyone involved, it isn't a quick fix. That is just how it is. That's not a big sales pitch. Um, it's something that has to be a partnership over time. And that's why I was saying that the, the, the core aspect of the MAPS Academy is that it's it's around learning and collaborating. 
Um, but how that process and program looks with, a with each client looks a little bit different. Um, but all of them do follow, for example, um, how do you in your business meaningfully understand the hazards to people, the ones that are foreseeable, because you don't have to start trying to grab out of the sky things that you couldn't possibly have seen coming, people's private lives, et cetera. That's where you have got the classic sort of mental health support. But this is about saying what is foreseeable and being willing to look where you'd rather not look, aspects of the culture that perhaps over time have gone a little bit stale, if not toxic. Um, we know some pretty big name broadcasters in this country might have fallen foul a little bit of not looking in some of the dark corners they could have, and it comes back to bite them again and again. Um, so it, it's it's all of those things, really, but it's working in partnership. And to Sheila's point, it's got to be at least over a certain amount of time. Fantastic. So I think for today, we'll probably wrap our podcast to a close. Um, I just do want to say to everybody, I hope you found that um, insightful uh, and valuable. Um, if you did, please do hit that subscribe button uh, so you don't miss any of our future episodes and absolutely would be over the moon if you think this would benefit any of your colleagues your boss some of your friends um, then do you know share the podcast we want to kind of get this out to um, as many um, people as possible um, if you need to contact us uh, we're always available um, you can email uh, Jackie, um, that's J-A-C-Q-U-I, so not the regular Jackie, special Jackie, uh, Jackie at bmrhealthandwellbeing.co.uk or Sheila uh, at the same email address, bmrhealthandwellbeing.co.uk. Yeah, and so always here and happy to chat. And actually, I think the one thing I would say is that when this works well, um, I find that what actually happens is I, Sheila, others get to do what A, we love doing and B, we do well. And so do you. You you don't have to feel completely overwhelmed about things. You just you think this is this is beyond anything I've quite had to deal with so far is that but there are loads of things you are doing well. And so that's the partnership for me is that everybody actually gets to feel competent and well equipped and figure out the stuff together. And so it's all about collaboration. So doing things that way is where the big differences happen. Oh,